0: And that's why we're here today, because something called precision medicine, in some cases people call it personalized medicine, gives us one of the greatest opportunities for new medical breakthroughs that we have ever seen. This is former President Barack Obama launching his administration's All of Us Precision Medicine Initiative in 2015. The program kick-started the future of healthcare for personalized interventions. Doctors have always recognized that every patient is unique and doctors have always tried to tailor their treatments as best they can to individuals. What if figuring out the right dose of medicine was as simple as taking our temperature? And that's the promise of precision medicine, delivering the right treatments at the right time, every time, to the right person. Like many in healthcare who believe in the potential of better technologies and more effective medicine to change lives, I was excited about this bold movement. I envisioned a future where everyone has equal access to healthcare and individuals can benefit from scientific advancements that provide tailored treatments, especially for diseases that have poor health outcomes. This, of course, is no easy feat. Moving towards personalized health will require us to think differently and creatively about every aspect of healthcare delivery, from insurance to data protection, technology, and the resources we invest in preventative medicine versus sick care. This is Future Proofing Healthcare, a podcast that explores how the choices we make today impact the healthcare of tomorrow. I'm your host, Tony Estrella. In the first episode of our series, we'll explore the premise and promises of personalized health. We'll hear from two experts, Dr. Rifat Atun and Professor Tiki Pengestu about the progress that has been made since 2015 and the challenges that remain. Gosh, this is frustrating. How are we supposed to help people improve their survival rates when they get diagnosed with cancer when they don't get any of the new treatments. I mean, we live in Singapore. People have options, you know. Sharon, you know that's not how healthcare works. It's not up to the individual to make that decision. Doctors make it for them. They decide what's best for the patient. No, no, no. That's not the way it should work. I mean, look at our cancer outcomes for the population. We have the right genomic profiling tests, the right precision medicines, And yet, only a select few get them. It's our medical guidelines lah. If you want to change that, then we need more evidence. And more importantly, who is going to pay for these new treatments? Everything costs money, right? This fictional exchange took place between two people who work in the Ministry of Health in Singapore, the country I call home. Cancer is the leading cause of death in Singapore, causing over 25% of total annual deaths. But with tailored interventions, guided by genomic screening tests, we have the tools to treat cancer more effectively. While these opportunities are exciting, our fictional health officials brought up a few important concerns. How well do policymakers understand the promise of personalized health? Who will pay for it? What impact does it have on patients and healthcare delivery today? And what barriers prevent us from achieving better results? To help answer some of these questions, I spoke with Dr. Rifat Atun, Professor of Global Health Systems and the Director of the Global Health Systems Cluster at Harvard's T. H. Chan School of Public Health. At the start of our discussion, he explained why he left a career in the clinic to pursue a new path in public health policy. I started my
1: professional life as a clinician, and I loved clinical practice. I practiced for 15 years. And of course, one is able to make important contributions to improve people's lives. But with policy, one can improve lives of millions. If the policy is right, if it's appropriately targeted, then the results can be far greater than an intervention that might benefit an individual. What I also saw was that in many countries, there was a real opportunity to improve health systems, to enable adoption of new innovations and scale these up. And I'm not just talking about technology innovations, these also relate to programmatic innovations or innovations in care delivery or innovations in health system financing or innovations in improving the awareness of individuals, uh, which we don't pay enough attention to unfortunately health systems. So all these possibilities have really excited me and prompted me to move into health systems work, which has been very rewarding in so many ways.
0: Rifat has worked with over 30 health systems in his career. As a result, he's had to explain personalized health to many different audiences.
1: Personalized health is health interventions that are much more efficient, much more effective, but much more equitable and responsive to needs of individuals and subpopulations, as opposed to a one-size-fits-all approach that benefits a few. With precision health and with precision medicine, not only can we improve outcomes, We can improve outcomes for
0: all in an equitable way. Most academics, clinicians, policymakers, and technologists will agree that a critical milestone to enable personalized health was the mapping of the human genome in 2003. In the US, many will point to former President Obama's All of Us initiative, which we heard him describe at the start of this episode, as another important milestone. Globally. The acceptance and growth of personalized health programs are evolving across other countries and regions like the EU, the UK, Canada, Australia, China, and Singapore, which are all becoming very influential with their programs and research. I asked Rafat, what has changed over the past five years?
1: First of all, the discourse is very different. I think people are much more aware of the possibilities. We now have data in relation to genetics, in relation to individual level characteristics, in relation to health service utilization, and in relation to potential side effects of a particular interventions, and also in relation to outcomes. Of course, these data did exist in the past, but we can now capture these data digitally and actually integrate them and be able to analyze them using data science. Computing power has improved substantially and is being applied to health. We have advanced very substantially in genetics and lower cost genotyping. And I think there's greater readiness, especially with the COVID-19 pandemic, to develop much more targeted interventions to populations and subpopulations, because one has been able to see the benefits when more targeted interventions uh, have been applied, for example, in South Korea, in Singapore, and elsewhere. So the mindset has changed, and I think that's very healthy for the future.
0: For any of us who've worked for any amount of time in healthcare, we recognize the challenge of successfully changing behaviors and mindsets. It's not easy, and a person can dedicate their entire career towards this mission. And while change is happening, unfortunately, we're not quite there yet in shifting the way health systems operate universally.
1: The health system part, the delivery part, there has been little radical innovation. We're still stuck with the models that go back centuries. So as a result, we have these innovations coming into systems that are not really fit for purpose because the epidemiology has changed, the sociocultural norms and expectations have changed. So what needs to change is the innovation mindset, investing in the delivery side to transform health systems. Clearly more of the same is not going to be enough.
0: That has never been more true than in dealing with COVID-19. The pandemic has put our outdated healthcare systems to the ultimate test. And early on, it seemed that many countries were failing. But the pandemic has also been a major catalyst for innovation, not only for technology, but also for how these technologies are integrated into new healthcare processes.
1: I think the latter is very, very important because there's no shortage of new technologies. What has been the challenges to change the health system to enable these innovations to be taken up at scale, we've seen, for example, very rapid development of vaccine candidates. And a number of countries have been able to scale up vaccination programs very rapidly. I mean, that requires not just scientific excellence, but also regulatory flexibility to push through trials very quickly, but also logistical and supply chain excellence and well functioning health systems to ensure that the vaccines can be used. Another good example in relation to cancer care, which has suffered terribly with COVID-19, and there's a huge number of individuals whose care has been delayed. But the oncology community have been able to come up with new guidelines, novel optimal treatments or treatment combinations, use of remote management, home-based care delivery, telemedicine, teleconsultations, in order to keep the system running. And many European countries have been able to put this into
0: practice. Of course, cancer care has been improving and evolving since long before the pandemic. But the virus drove countries to move even more quickly to improve healthcare delivery. So solutions reach the people who need them most. If we bring this back to our original question, what barriers are preventing us or limiting our ability to achieve personalized health? The
1: first is in relation to availability and use of data. While data exists, these are not used to really understand risk factors and the challenges that relate to different subpopulations. So we're not able to harness the digital data capabilities that currently exist. Secondly, there's the institutional logic, which is very difficult to change. We are using policies that we've been using for many, many years. That institutional logic needs to change to realize that there are benefits for applying
0: novel approaches. The United States approach to smoking cessation represents how long it can take to enact policy reform. Although several decades of validated research have confirmed the enormous economic and public health costs of smoking, there is still no national ban. And this challenge is not unique to one country. As other policymakers around the world are also struggling to address how to implement smoking cessation programs. The third is risk taking.
1: Inherently, policymakers and I think the medical profession are risk averse. So, introducing something new or an innovation can be challenging.
0: Rifat and other experts believe policymakers and medical professionals can be cautious in applying novel technologies for a number of reasons. We'll hear from them and explore this topic in greater detail later in our series. We could
1: also add a fourth barrier, which is incentives. Most countries still use historic incremental budgeting, as opposed to novel payment models that create incentives to improve outcomes. So we need to create funding or payment models to create incentives for adoption and diffusion of innovations.
0: In summary, health systems, like many other large private or public institutions, can resist change until they're forced to think and act differently. And the experience of responding to the COVID-19 pandemic offers some important lessons for policymakers as we move towards the future of healthcare.
1: Institutional memory should be converted into capability. We need
0: to move beyond having
1: paper exercises. What we've seen in reality is that when it came to the crunch, countries were not able to respond and the response was not sustained, so the systems were not resilient. We need to work to ensure health systems have the capability for rapid response, targeted response. With COVID-19, we have at least another year of intensive response that needs to be had. Certainly, many Southeast Asian countries, including Taiwan and Singapore, have done very well because they were able to apply the capabilities learned during earlier SARS epidemics.
0: The major takeaway from my conversation with Rifat is this. We need to change healthcare policy, budgets, and delivery to ensure that technology advancements for personalized health can reach the populations that need them most. So how long will this take? When I think about achieving a new future, I'm reminded of a quote from author William Gibson. The future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. In other words, some countries are moving more rapidly towards personalized health than others. One new measure of this progress is the Personalized Health Index from Future-Proofing Healthcare, which compares data about health infrastructure, policy, and services from countries in Asia Pacific, Europe, and Africa. The index can be found on the Future-Proofing Healthcare website. As one example, the Personalized Health Index from Future-Proofing Healthcare ranks Japan among the top countries in Asia-Pacific for use of telehealth. Japan has been promoting the use of telehealth since the 1970s, and after the 2011 tsunami, its use expanded after the destruction of many medical clinics and disappearance of patient records. Despite this progress, prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, telehealth remained limited to certain use cases. But in early 2020, as infections rose, Japanese officials lifted restrictions so doctors could treat more patients and more medical conditions. Now, nearly 15% of medical facilities in Japan are using telehealth, compared to less than 1% in 2018. There is still resistance to telehealth among some providers in Japan, who fear it could lead to misdiagnoses or communication problems with patients. But on the whole, telecare has been successful and welcomed during the pandemic. And Prime Minister Suga Yoshihide wants to make some of the telehealth policy changes permanent, so Japan is prepared for the future of healthcare. This brings us to the next question and final topic for this episode. How exactly are health policy decisions made? And how do decision-makers bring technology and scientific evidence to bear on health policy? For answers, I caught up with Professor Tiki Pengestu from the Yulin School of Medicine, one of several experts on the Future-Proofing Healthcare Advisory Panel. Tiki's background is in biomedicine and he was a researcher and academic for many years before moving over to health policy. Tiki, great to speak with you. As you know, we're explaining the promise of personalized health to our audience. And you've had years of experience from working at the World Health Organization. To start, what did you do there and why did you choose them? I joined the
2: WHO as director of its research policy and cooperation department and basically worked with uh, the member countries of the WHO to sort of promote the use of scientific evidence in the development of health policies. Right at the front door, there is a statement of the mission of the WHO. And that was my eureka moment. And the mission statement says, the highest attainable level of health for all people. And it just hit me that knowledge is about improving health, but not only improving health, improving health equity.
0: Tiki worked with developing countries at the WHO for 13 years. For example, nearly 20 years ago in Thailand, the country was considering whether to introduce a new vaccine for human papillomavirus, also known as HPV. Data showed that when kids aged 12 to 15 received the vaccine, their risk for cervical cancer could be significantly reduced. The Institute for Health, an independent body within the Thai government, evaluated the clinical data to develop a policy proposal for the Ministry of Health. Here's Tiki explaining what happened next
2: the Institute for Health Policy recommended that at that point in time, it was not a good idea to introduce this policy, not because it was expensive, but because there were other technologies that could do the job equally well in terms of managing the number of cervical cancer cases at very much lower cost. So based on that evidence-based recommendation from the Institute of Health Policy. The government decided not to introduce the vaccine into the health system of Thailand. Many years later, of course, when the price of the vaccine dropped, the Thai government did introduce the vaccine into their immunization
0: systems. This is an excellent example of how scientific evidence helped to inform a rational, cost-effective policy decision. In this case, Thailand operated with an independent health body, which actively reviewed evidence to inform health policy. But not all countries operate this way. Tiki, what are some of the challenges that make it difficult for health systems to engage in evidence-based decision-making?
2: There are not that many countries, especially in the developing world, that place value on having good evidence reviewed before a policy decision is made. In many other countries, one of the primary barriers is a lack of trust between the policymakers and the researchers and the scientists. The second barrier is they speak different languages. A policymaker in many of our countries are not necessarily science literate. So for a scientist to then try to speak to these policymakers in scientific jargon is probably going to be a problem.
0: Beyond lack of trust and communication challenges, Tiki says a third barrier is that academics are driven by their own research objectives and don't necessarily consider how their research can be applied in practice.
2: So that means that a lot of the research that's being done is actually not relevant to a policymaker. Not only is it not relevant, it is sometimes not timely. A policymaker sometimes has very limited time in order to make a policy decision. In the case of an outbreak of a disease, it could be 48, 72 hours, whereas a lot of research takes a
0: much longer time. Of course, the problem isn't always that policymakers and researchers have different priorities. Sometimes the public isn't fully on board. For example, vaccine hesitancy has been a challenge for countries around the world for years but it's taken on a new level of urgency during the COVID-19 pandemic. Tiki, what are some of the factors that are responsible for public mistrust of vaccines? The lack of science
2: literacy in the population, especially in the developing world, it's going to be tough for them to understand the subtleties of why a vaccine is only 70% effective as opposed to 95% effective the scientific characteristics of vaccine can be conveyed only if there's a certain amount of scientific literacy and awareness in the population. One other barrier or issue here is lack of trust. It's almost a cultural issue. Many populations in Asia, for example, are quite compliant to government directives because they have a high level of trust in the government. In many Western democracies, the primary concern is individual freedom. It's my right to refuse the vaccine. That's why in France, only between 40 to 50% are willing to accept the vaccine. The rest will say, oh, I don't trust this. I refuse to accept the vaccine. Well, my response to that is freedom doesn't mean you can do things that can potentially harm
0: others. (laughs) Well, that reminds me of a quote, you're entitled to your own opinions, but not to your own facts. Uh, Back to building trust. I know the pandemic has been hard for a lot of people, but it's also had some positives, right? Uh, What can you tell us about how policymakers can combat public mistrust and and encourage populations to follow evidence-based health advice?
2: It's about improving trust, good communication. It's about using the right messengers a recent survey on Twitter done in Indonesia found that it is actually celebrities who have been more effective in conveying the message about vaccine. And importantly, it's celebrities speaking in their own voice. I think the overall message is be prepared to mobilize all potential influencers
0: that can spread the right message. In other words, policymakers should think both about the message and also about the effectiveness of the messenger. In summary, for any decision makers who are looking to deliver the future of healthcare and replicate Thailand's success in using scientific evidence to craft health policy, Tiki believes the path forward begins with a simple step.
2: To be much more aware of the benefit of personalized healthcare integrated with precision public health. At the end of the day, one supports the other.
0: Good point. And how can researchers support this mission?
2: Researchers need
0: to speak
2: in a language that is understood by the public health policymakers to promote a holistic approach, integrating the technologies of precision medicine with the benefits of public health improvement and appeal to work with the public
0: policymakers. In other words, bridge the trust gap between policymakers and researchers. In the jargon, that is known as the know do gap. The knowing doing gap has been studied for decades. In 2006, the term gained further attention when academics Jeffrey Pfeffer and Robert Sutton published their book titled the knowing-doing gap, how smart companies turn knowledge into action. Put simply, the knowing-doing gap is the disconnect between knowledge and action. According to the authors, the leaders who can bridge this gap and turn knowledge into performance are those that realize the best results. One final question for you, Tiki. We've talked about how policymakers and researchers can help achieve personalized health together. What role does private industry play here? private industry can continue pushing
2: the frontiers on some of these critical technologies. It could be diagnostics, treatment, better vaccine in the future. Think of a vaccine that doesn't require to be stored at minus 20 degrees. Only they have the resources to push the frontiers on the technologies that are gonna bring personal healthcare and public health together.
0: Pushing frontiers. That's a great way to sum up this episode. Researchers and private industry have been making incredible progress in genomics, data science, and other technologies to improve healthcare. And policymakers are thinking more creatively about healthcare delivery so they can bring these novel technologies to the people who need them the most. In order to realize the future of personalized health, we need added improvements in health policy services, and infrastructure, so we can deliver the right treatments to the right people at the right time. This is the Future-Proofing Healthcare podcast, where we are exploring how the choices we make today impact the healthcare of tomorrow. Join us in our next episode, as we debate the idea on whether personalized health is incompatible with public health. Many thanks to my guests, Dr. Rifata Toon and Professor Tiki Pengestu, for their time and insights. You can find more information about future-proofing healthcare at futureproofinghealthcare.com, including a full list of sources used in developing this episode to listen, subscribe and review our episodes head to your favorite podcast player. This show was written, researched, and produced by Taliosa mission-based media and Roche. Additional research and writing was also done by Michaela Arneson. Sound design was by Ivan Yurich. and until next time, I'm Tony Estrella, and thank you for listening.